Welcome to episode number 23 of Calm History. This is a spotlight episode featuring the history of salt and many more fun facts. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. Alright, today's episode is about the history of salt. Yeah, I know. Could I have picked a more boring topic? And I agree, that does sound boring. But here are some curious questions I'll address today. What are the key differences between table salt, sea salt, kosher salt, and Himalayan salt. What exactly is salt, and why is it important to health? What would happen if you ate too much salt, or ate too little salt? If only 6% of the salt manufactured in the world is used for food-related purposes, what the heck is the rest used for? What do the words salary and salad have to do with salt? How has salt been used in religion and war? What historical role did salt have for Christopher Columbus, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and Mahatma Gandhi. How exactly was salt extracted from seawater before the 17th century? I'll explain it step by step. And finally, I'll finish by telling you all about one of the largest and most fascinating salt mines in history. I'm talking about a salt mine that has over 150 miles of passageways. I'll even walk you down into it and give you a guided tour. I've found the history of salt so interesting that I've already started planning some bonus episodes. One bonus episode may be about a town that dug so many salt mines underneath itself that it started sinking. Another bonus episode may be about how the Nazis stored stolen art inside salt mines and how that art was later discovered and returned. If you enjoy this episode and want many more episodes, then just become a Silk Plus member and you can get free access for a limited time to every archive and bonus episode of Calm History, along with 500 other episodes. If interested, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay, it's time to step inside 
my time machine of tranquility. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The history of salt and other fun facts. I want to begin by explaining the differences between four popular types of salts and where they come from. These are table salt, sea salt, kosher salt, and Himalayan salt. Let me start with, what is table salt? This is the salt you probably sprinkle on your food, at home, or in a restaurant. You might guess that it's isolated from some salt water source, but it isn't. All table salt is extracted from salt mines. Yeah, sort of like extracting gold from gold mines. Once extracted from salt mines, most of it then gets processed in three ways to turn it into typical table salt. Number one, other minerals are removed to optimize the look and taste of pure salt. Number two, iodine is added to reduce iodine deficiency health problems like goiter. And number three, anti-caking agents are added so it doesn't clump up in your humid kitchen or on rainy days. The clumping of salt used to be a big problem in many kitchens prior to the addition of anti-caking agents. At one point, Morton salt didn't have any anti-caking agents, so it would get clumpy on rainy days. They fixed this in 1911 by adding anti-caking agents to inform consumers that their improved salt doesn't clump on rainy days. They created that famous slogan, When it rains, it pours. Yep, even on rainy days, the salt will still pour rather than clumping. When it rains, it pours. All right. Salt type number two. What is sea salt? Yes, this type of salt does come directly from salty oceans, seas, lakes, or maybe rivers. However, it usually retains its other minerals, and because of that, it may taste slightly different than table salt. Sort of how mineral water tastes a little different than water that has had most of the minerals removed. Sea salt usually doesn't have iodine added, but it usually still does have anti-caking agents to keep it from clumping. Now let's move on to salt type number three. What is kosher salt? Just like table salt, it mostly comes from salt mines 
rather than evaporated salt water. But the big difference is that the grains of kosher salt are much larger than the grains of table salt. Visualize the chunky salt pieces on a large, soft pretzel. Yep, that there is kosher salt. It usually doesn't have other minerals, iodine, or anti-caking agents. So why is it called kosher salt? Kosher foods are those that meet specific Jewish culinary standards of preparation. For example, the koshering of meat was done historically by using large grains of salt to draw out the blood from the meat. This resulted in those large grains of salt being called kosher salt. Today, you may also hear or see kosher salt referred to as coarse salt, kitchen salt, cooking salt, flake salt, or rock salt. And finally, what is Himalayan salt? Just like table salt and kosher salt, it mostly comes from salt mines rather than evaporated salt water. But Himalayan salt tends to contain additional minerals. These include calcium, magnesium, potassium, and iron oxide. It's the iron oxide that gives it a special pink color. And this is the key feature of Himalayan salt. Now let's move on to the biology side of salt. What is salt, and why is it important to health? Salt is composed of two elements, sodium and chloride. They like to stick together as the compound, sodium chloride, because sodium has a positive charge and chloride has a negative charge. Sodium and chloride are both important to our health, but sodium more so. If you don't get enough sodium, then your nerves and muscles can't function properly. Generally, all your cells and body functions rely on sodium and chloride to some extent. What symptoms would you experience if you didn't get enough salt or sodium? Initial symptoms would include muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness. This would eventually lead to extremely low blood pressure, coma, and death. Can you get too much sodium? Yes. High sodium intake is associated with a greater risk of stroke, total cardiovascular disease, and kidney disease. All right. You clearly know that salt is important in the proper amounts, in your diet, and it tastes good. But is salt used for anything else besides adding taste to our food?
Yes. Before the advent of electrically powered refrigeration, salting was one of the main methods of food preservation. Less so today, but you will still find many foods with a very high sodium content because it increases their shelf life or fridge life. And now I want to tackle what I think is one of the most fascinating questions in this episode. What percent of the salt manufactured in the world is used in food? The answer is, it's only 6%. And that shocks me. I don't think I would have been very good at coming up with many other uses of salt. So if we're not adding salt to food, what are we using it for? Well, about 6% is used in agriculture. About 8% goes for de-icing highways and sidewalks. And about 12% is used in water conditioning processes, probably like things like water softeners. But that still leaves 68% of salt use unaccounted for. I haven't even explained to you yet what is the major use of salt in the world. The most common use for salt is that it is used for manufacturing and other industrial processes. This includes the production of PVC, plastics, paper pulp, aluminum, soaps, synthetic rubber, pottery glaze, textile dyes, high tanning, and much more. Now, where does all this salt come from? For global sources, the top five producers of salt today are China, the United States, India, Germany, and Canada. These countries, and many other countries, are either getting this salt from one of the two general sources that I mentioned before. Salt can be evaporated from any saltwater source, such as salt-rich lakes, seas, or oceans. Or salt could be mined from the ground, similar to how gold is mined from a mine shaft. The interesting thing is that most salt mines are below sea level, rather than in mountains like gold mines. This is because the solid salt in the mine was originally deposited there by an ancient source of salt water that is no longer there. This could have been an ancient sea, an ancient salty lake, or any salt water source that is long dried up. Now, I'm going to go back in time about 8,000 years and talk through many key moments in history that involve salt. As far back as 6050 BC, Neolithic people 
or boiling salt water to extract the salt. The first salt mine was probably around 5000 BC and was located in Austria. Being able to extract salt either from seawater or from mines probably contributed to the rise and growth of the local people who benefited from it. As a testament to this value of salt, around 4700 BC, the first city in Europe was centered around a salt mine. This city was in Bulgaria and was named Solnitsada, which literally means salt works. The residents knew how important their salt mine was, so they even built a wall around their city to protect it. With the spread of civilization, salt became one of the world's most hotly traded items. It was of high value to the ancient Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Hittites, and other peoples of antiquity. The Old Testament mentions the words salt, salted, saltiness, and salt pits about 47 times. The most famous mention of salt occurs in Genesis. This is when Lot's wife looks back at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as they were destroyed, and then she turns into a pillar of salt. Another biblical mention is the covenant of salt. This is when ancient Hebrews made a covenant with God by sprinkling salt on their offerings. In the Middle East, salt was also used to seal agreements. Around 2800 BC, the Egyptians began trading salt and salt fish to the Phoenicians in exchange for cedar, glass, and purple dye. Ancient Egyptian tombs from this time also contained salt, salt fish, and salted birds. This showed that salt and salted foods were even considered valuable in the afterlife. Some salt-related stories about the Roman Empire further highlight the value of salt in history. In the early years of the Roman Empire, around 27 BC, roads were built just for the transportation of salt. During meals, Romans put salt on their leafy vegetables, which led to the word salad, which means salted. Roman soldiers were given salt, although it is unclear if it was part of their rations or part of their salaries. Curiously, though, the word salary does come from the Latin word for salt. There are some other reports of salt being used as money. In some parts of Africa, it is believed that salt was used as currency 
and that slabs of rock salt were used as coins. Starting around 1050 BC, there are reports throughout history that salt was even used as a weapon. An ancient practice in the time of war was referred to as salting the earth. This meant to scatter salt inside a defeated city to prevent plant growth. This may have occurred during the Third Punic War in 146 BC, and even later, in 1299 AD, when the Pope in Rome ordered a city to its east to be salted as a punishment. Mostly, though, salt was valued and fought over rather than weaponized. In 1304 AD, there was even a war over salt. It was called the Salt War. This was a brief war between Venice and Padua. Padua wanted to evaporate salt from some salt water areas, but Venice thought that this might interfere with their salt monopoly. In the end, Venice was victorious and Padua had to stop all salt production. In 1492, the voyages of Christopher Columbus are said to have been financed from salt production in southern Spain. Unfair taxes on salt have even contributed to several important rebellions throughout history. This includes the Biscay Revolt that started in 1631, the American Revolution that started in 1775, and the French Revolution that started in 1789. Another historical moment that involved a rebellion over a salt tax was the famous Salt March in India. In 1930, Mahatma Gandhi led at least 100,000 people on a salt march to protest a salt tax. The protesters marched to the sea and made their own salt as a defiance against British rule and the salt tax. This moment of civil disobedience inspired millions of people and grew into a national struggle for Indian independence. Now, so far, I've explained the importance of salt throughout history. But I haven't explained how salt was exactly produced. So now I'm going to tell you about some historical methods for getting salt from saltwater sources. Since the 12th century, Chinese salt makers used a specific method to extract salt from the sea. They began by dividing the seashore into small squares. Then they would dig them up, line them with straw, and put some dirt on top of the straw. Each pit would then be filled with seawater. Over time, the seawater partially evaporates, leaving behind a salt-rich fluid 
called brine. The brine is then boiled in large pans for about 12 hours to further remove the remaining water. In the end, the bottom of each pan contains the extracted salt. In the 1400s, the Chinese made a modification to this method. Instead of boiling the salty brine water, they poured it into gigantic pits that had clay bottoms. These clay bottom pits were also called evaporating basins. A combination of gravity and evaporation resulted in the salt collecting at the bottom of these clay pits. Once the process was basically complete, they dried the salt out and sold it on the market. Other countries have used similar methods in the past. For example, Japan, Italy, Portugal, and Spain have all extracted salt from seawater by using the sun to evaporate the water. Over time, though, many countries switch from evaporating the seawater by the sun to evaporating the seawater by boiling. Fortunately, the exact details for the boiling method were published in a book in 1556. The book describes how seawater is initially evaporated by the sun to turn it into that more concentrated type of salt water called brine. The process begins by pouring the brine into a boiling container. These boiling containers, or large cauldrons, are rectangular in shape, measuring 8 feet in length, 7 feet in width, and with a depth of about a half a foot. These cauldrons are made from sheets of iron or lead, which are kept deliberately thin to ensure that the water heats up quickly and boils off efficiently. A fire is then ignited under the giant cauldron. The fuel for the fire may be wood or straw. I'll explain shortly how this choice can affect the final salt product. To make the salty water turn into salt faster, the salt maker mixes in animal blood, like from a bull, a calf, or a deer. If there's any dirty foam on top of the boiling water, it's skimmed off with a big spoon. During the boiling process, the water is stirred with a wooden stick as it gets thicker. After about two hours, salt can be scooped out of the diminishing liquid with a shovel and put into baskets. The salt is then shaped into cones or tablets and allowed to fully dry. The resultant salt is either white or blackish, and this was caused by the initial fuel choice. Salt that was boiled with wood as a fuel was white, 
but salt that was boiled with straw as a fuel, was blackish. This is because the sparks from the burning straw rise up with the smoke, and some land inside the boiling water. Those sparks add bits of ash to the liquid to result in the blackish salt. All right, so that was how salt was extracted from salt water. But how was salt extracted from salt mines? When salt is extracted from mines, rather than from salt water sources, it is commonly called rock salt. The location of rock salt is variable, being found in all types of sedimentary formations. The common attribute is at some point an ancient saltwater source was located there and it left the salt behind. One of the biggest and most fascinating salt mines in history is the Wielicka salt mine in Poland. This salt mine reaches a depth of about 1,000 feet or 320 meters, and it extends by horizontal passages and chambers for over 178 miles or 287 kilometers. The origin of this mine began in the late 1200s AD. This is when the first mine shafts were dug to extract the rock salt. During the 1300s, the salt mine was further developed. So much wood was needed for the mine that Poland was said to have lost many of its magnificent forests as they were cut down and then sent down into the mine to support the mine shafts. You could even say that this salt mine made the whole country smarter. How? The high profits from the salt mine enabled the king of Poland at this time to create the Krakow Academy, the first university in Poland. By the 1400s, over 300 people worked in the mine, and over 7,000 tons of salt were extracted each year. By the end of the 1400s, there was one underground level that had four mining shafts. During the 1500s, a second level was created, and during the 1600s, a third level was created. During the early 1700s, other salt operations in Poland were burning wood to evaporate salt from salt water. But they were using so much wood that it caused a shortage of wood to create new mine shafts. So in 1724, salt evaporation methods in Poland were abandoned so the wood could be used in the salt mine. In the late 1700s, salt miners started using gunpowder to release the salt. Other additions to the mine at this time included an underground railroad, a steam hoisting machine, 
and a power plant. The salt mine had become one of the most important companies in the entire empire of Russia, Austria, and Prussia. In 1774, guest books were introduced to be signed by visitors. These books show that the mine was also becoming a popular place for tourists to visit. Here is a long quote from an American traveler who visited these mines around 1865. Here's the quote. After descending 210 feet, we saw the first veins of rock salt in a bed of clay and crumbled sandstone. Thirty feet more, and we were in a world of salt. Level galleries branched off from the foot of the staircase. Overhead, a ceiling of solid salt, and underfoot, a floor of solid salt and on either side, gray walls of salt, sparkling here and there with minute crystals. Lights glimmered ahead, and on turning a corner, we came upon a gang of workmen. Some were hacking away at the solid floor. Others were pushing wheelbarrows full of the precious deposits. There was even a chapel of St. Anthony, the oldest in the mines, a Byzantine excavation supported by columns with an altar, a crucifix, and life-size statues of saints, apparently in black marble. I can't follow, step by step, our journey of two hours through the labyrinths of this wonderful mine. It was a bewildering maze of galleries, grand halls, staircases, and vaulted chambers. One soon loses all sense of direction or distance and drifts along blindly in the wake of his conductor. Everything was solid salt, except where great piers of logs had been built up to support some threatening ceiling or vast chasms left in quarrying had been bridged across. As we descended to lower regions, the air became more dry and agreeable and the sailing walls more pure and brilliant. One hall, 108 feet in length, resembled a Grecian theater the traces of blocks taken out in regular layers, representing the seats for the spectators. Out of this single hall, 56,000 tons of salt had been taken, or enough to supply the 40 million inhabitants of Austria for one year. Two obelisks of salt commemorated the visits of Francis I and his empress. These were located in a spacious, irregular vault through which we passed by means of a wooden bridge 
which was resting on piers of the crystalline rock. Presently, we entered another and loftier chamber, yawning downwards like the mouth of hell, with cavernous tunnels opening out of the further end. A little further, we struck upon a lake, four fathoms deep, upon which we embarked in a heavy square boat and entered a gloomy tunnel. Over the entrance of this tunnel was inscribed the words, in salt letters of course, Good luck to you. Finally, at the depth of 450 feet, our journey ceased, although we were but halfway to the bottom. The remainder of the mine is a wilderness of shafts, galleries, and smaller chambers, the extent of which we could only imagine. We then returned through scores of tortuous passages to some vaults, where a lot of workers, naked to the hips, were busy with a pick, a mallet, and a wedge, blocking out and separating the solid deposits. The process is quite primitive, scarcely different from that of the ancient Egyptians in quarrying granite. The blocks are first marked out of the surface by a series of grooves. One side is then deepened to the required thickness, and wedges are inserted under the block, and then it is soon split off. The number of workmen employed in the mines is 1,500, who relieve each other every six hours. These workers produce an annual yield of 84,000 tons of salt. End quote. From 1868 on, part of the route could be toured by a horse-drawn railway. Special attractions were prepared for tourists, such as the Devil's Drop, a descent into the mine using a rope. During the tour in these years, the path was illuminated with torches. The mining orchestra played for the visitors, and there were also firework shows. During 1918 to 1939, the mine produced about 200,000 tons of salt per year. Tourism also grew during this time, resulting in about 120,000 visitors over these 20 years. Special events were also held in the mine, such as rallies, conventions, and anniversaries. During World War II, the mine was taken over by the occupying Germans. They transported several thousand Jewish individuals to work in the mine to manufacture military equipment. However, manufacturing never began because the Soviet offensive was nearing. By 1960, the mine had grown to have nine levels 26 mine shafts and a maximum depth 
of 327 meters. In 1964, the mining of rock salt was completely discontinued. Instead, the mine switched to a wet mining method coupled with salt evaporation techniques. In 1976, the mine began being listed in the Register of Monuments. In 1994, it was declared a National Historic Monument by the President of the Republic of Poland. In 1996, a decision was made to end industrial salt production in the mine, but to still retain a strong focus on tourism. Although only 2% of the mine's total passages are open to tourists, this still results in a visiting area that has a length of 2.2 miles or 3.5 kilometers. Visitors today will see most of the sites I've already explained in this episode, along with many newer exhibits. So, if you plan to be in Poland in the near future, make sure to ask around about that mega-huge salt mine and then give it a visit. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed this spotlight episode of Calm History. If you'd like to become a Silk Plus member and get free access for a limited time to all the archive and bonus episodes of Calm History and 500 other episodes, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Thank you for listening to my podcast.